Right. Well, uh, a lot of folks are locked into that. Yeah. When not realizing it as a, it's a, it's an idiom related to the marriage. Exactly. And Jesus isn't saying he not, doesn't know. He's saying as the God man, the man part of him doesn't know. Yeah. The God part of him absolutely knows. But those times are still, he still looks to the Father well, for it, God it, to. It also is related to, I go to prepare a place for you. Right. Um, if it were not so, I would have told you. Blah, blah, right. blah. Which is all part of the Jewish... What version is that? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, uh, that's the Sam Beatty new, <laughs> new revised version. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, turn turn to Daniel nine because that's where we're going to start today. We're going to do a, a quick, maybe not too quick. I've got fifteen slides I want to get through tonight. But go to Daniel nine. Let's open in a word of prayer. We're going to deal with the um, seventy weeks where we get that expression, where we get that phrase, the time of that, and then we're going to go into Revelation 4. So let's open with some prayer. Lord, thanks so much for this time and day, and thanks for your word. Um, help us as we open up its pages that would it would open up its wisdom to us. Help us to seek your wisdom, your discernment, and we are so grateful and thank you so much for the word that we have and the time that we have tonight to discuss it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're going to start in... Um, the first part of Daniel 9 is interesting. Uh, so we'll get here in just a second. But if you look at the first part of Daniel 9, Daniel was fascinating to me in many senses, but the fact that there is never... He was obviously a sinner because he was human, but there is no hint of personal sin in his life at all. Uh, none. But we know there was because he was human. Yes. But the but God chose never to focus on personal sins like he did with David, like he did with um, other people in Scripture. Samson. It, pardon me? Samson. Samson. Oh, my oh, gosh. Yeah. That, guy, that guy reminds me of a jock who, uh, <laughs> you know, but anyway... So Daniel, in a sense, in many ways, of course, is the type of Christ. And I think possibly for that reason that sin is never attributed to him in Scripture, though we know he was a sinner. But in another way, which is what chapter 9 does, it brings out in the first part of the chapter up through verse 19, is that it tells us that, in a sense, Daniel's was he was a high priest in a sense, for the people of Israel. And that's what the first 19 verses are. Uh, he basically pours out his heart to God. He makes requests, prayer, supplication, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And then he confesses Israel's sins. Um, and, and it's just absolutely fascinating. He just goes on and on. Verse 18, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. And that's exactly what we do as believers. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. 
So he's in the midst of this really intense, emotional, fervent discussion, prayer with God. And then he says, there's just a slight change. Wouldn't it be something if this happened to us? But if it did, it would go beyond Scripture, so it's probably never going to. But verse 20, now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, so we know he sinned, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of God. And where's the holy mountain of God? That's where Jerusalem is. It's built on a mountain. That's why in the New Testament, you'll often say, here, read something where it says they went up to Jerusalem, and it didn't matter what direction they were coming from. All directions to go to Jerusalem had to go up. So um, here he goes, the holy mountain of my God. We also know through uh, Scripture that um, this mountain, this Jerusalem area is going to be wholly changed, completely changed when Jesus steps on it. When he, when he physically returns and steps on the Mount of Olives, it's, it's going to be hugely geographically changed. So it's even going to get higher. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So why was Daniel praying to begin with in chapter 9? Well, because he had been looking at... Uh, the words of Jeremiah. And he discovered that because of what Jeremiah had prophesied, that Israel would be kicked out of the land of Israel and held captive for 70 years. And so that's what he was thinking. Wow. In verse 2, in the first years of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the book's the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And so he did. And he was getting excited because the 70 years are almost over. So he's like, wow. I mean, imagine how exciting that would be. Imagine if we knew exactly when the tribulation started, then we could exactly figure out when it was going to end and how much that might change our perspective in life. Now, in some way, I'm glad we don't know that, but we would know what's going to start here, which means seven years later, Jesus is coming back. That would be unbelievable. But instead, he wants us to live every day as if this is our last day and we're going to meet him. That's why I really appreciated what Mark's message this morning. It was very, very good. I told him later, I said, ah, I needed to hear that. I definitely needed to. Because I can get too caught up in the stuff that's happening in the world and it can at times feel like it's overwhelming you. Um, And so then we lose sight of the fact that God wins, that God gets us through these things. So anyway, all right. So we are now in verse 20. Gabriel's come. Uh, Verse 23, he says, I want you to understand, consider what's happening and understand the vision. So... Right here in verse 24 through 27, we're reading about what Gabriel is telling 
Daniel. It's very fascinating. Notice he says 70 weeks are determined. That's the King James Version. Um, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Now, why didn't he say 70 years? Well, okay, let's get specific on this. This word that they translated weeks really should have been translated sevens, 70 sevens. And Fruchtenbaum goes into a great a lot of detail in the Hebrew about why that, but, why that should have been. But, ultimately, we still get to this. So I get why they translated it weak. So I'm not knocking the translators. I'm just trying to explain that really what Gabriel said was 77s are determined for your people. So that makes us then ask the question, well, what are sevens? What are sevens? Why sevens? Well, a seven is a seven either day uh, or year period of time. And there are many instances in scripture, I, I don't list them here, but there are a number of places, I should say, in Scripture that they use the phrase weeks to reference a number of years, usually seven years at a time. So this isn't the first time that this is used in Scripture. But here's what it says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to land, land, Land? No, that should be and to atone. Sorry. And, that's actually an I. I forgot to pull that out of there. And to atone for iniquity. It's referencing another cross-reference. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and prophecy. I can spell. And to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So this is extremely important, which is why Gabriel said, know therefore and understand. Know therefore and understand that there was a word given by a powerful person who said, go and restore and rebuild or build back Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one. So what he's saying, here's our first time frame right in here. And I'll, I have a chart that will make this more obvious. So to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. So when Jerusalem was started to be rebuilt until the coming of the anointed one. That is a period of time that Gabriel's pointing out to Daniel. Then it says, uh, there shall be seven weeks. So that period of time is seven weeks. And again... I wish they had said seven sevens because it would be easier to understand, but we'll get to that. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troublesome times. All right, so we've got two periods of time here, seven sevens and 62 sevens. Uh, let me read you, what, who has a different version than what I have? What do you have, Sam? Uh, King James Version. What do you have? I have New King James Version, so they're pretty similar. Does anybody have an ESV or anything? I can get an ESV. Okay. If yeah, you can read, yeah, if you can read verse twenty-five through with a different version. Well, hold on, man. Sure. I gotta figure out how to do that. Okay, and I'll look up a different version too, because it really. Um, it's interesting here. I have an ESV. You have an ESV? Yeah. You want to read it yeah. real quick? Yeah, i got to get to Daniel. Hang on. Daniel. 
We all have Bibles on our phone. Yeah, isn't it great? Mm-hmm. It's not really on the phone, it's on the on the web. Ah. So this says it says seventy weeks. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, and the, the New American Standard says, verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, mm. there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Those are two separate periods of time, but they run concurrently. It will be built, uh, yes, it will be built again. consecutively? I'm sorry? Concurrently? Sorry, consecutively, thank you. Yeah, one right after the other. Yeah. Right. When you start counting, this is where you... Math wizards. <laughs> like I told you, I was not good yeah. now. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Okay, so what we're learning here that Gabriel's and imagine Daniel, because Gabriel is telling him these things, and he's trying to make it understandable to Daniel, but Daniel's like, um, okay. I mean, there as we read through Daniel, especially when we get to 12, there's, there's a point there where Daniel says, and I was exhausted. I, and I'm paraphrasing, I didn't understand, but I sealed up the book and the vision. I mean, there, were no, there was no way that he could understand some of the things that were told to him. So, here we are. Now, 26. 26 says this. I'll continue reading NASB. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Okay, so there, after the Messiah is cut off, verse 26. And I think that that's an obvious reference to what? Oh, the crucifixion. Yeah, the crucifixion. Yeah. The Messiah being cut off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and Mark mentioned that today, this is a perfect time to be discussing this, because Mark mentioned today that, you know, we have what, what happening today? What was today? It was Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, when Jesus waltz, not waltzes, when he goes on a cult of a donkey, and a cult that had never been written, and of course, by the way, only kings rode donkeys. Yeah. That's it, in that time period, in those days. Kings rode donkeys. So here is Jesus riding the colt of a donkey that had never been written into Jerusalem. And people were like, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be then him who comes in the name of the Lord, blah, blah, blah. And Sam Beatty translation. And so, <laughs> so anyway, here's Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday. And we know what happens this Friday. He is cut off. He is killed. Just that quick. <clears throat> yeah. 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 So verse 26 says, after yeah. 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. 
I mean, there are people who argue about what that means, but to me it's pretty plain that we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about the fact that he was cut off from life, but not for himself. And I love the way Mark's sermon was just, we had, we had visitors with us, friends, who visited and they loved everything about the service this morning. They, they live up in Hampton, so they just wanted to come out and check out the church and visit with us and they just, they just loved it, the message and everything. But um, the next part we'll get into, let me hold off on that, and the people of the prince who is to come, we'll, get up, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but I want to go back, because Gabriel is explaining in these verses the interpretations of what comes before all of this. So he's saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. And Daniel had been reading and praying over Jeremiah's prophecy, which I had mentioned, which regards the number of years. That's back in verse 2 of chapter 9. So the entire chapter is dealing with years. So then Gabriel comes along, and he comes to provide interpretation for Jeremiah's writings, and he also gives Daniel more information that was not included with Jeremiah. Jeremiah was given information about the 70-year captivity. That was it, as far as that part of it goes. He wasn't given necessarily the 70 weeks interpretation. God determined that that would be Daniel's job to reveal that to us. So he comes to provide the interpretation of Jeremiah's writings and then give Daniel more information. And remember, as I've said before, you know, had, had God told Jeremiah, I mean, they were pretty much contemporaries, uh, in some ways, but had God told Jeremiah about the 70 weeks, then it would have been out there before Daniel had been given that information. But it is fascinating to me that God gave this information to Daniel a number hundreds and hundreds of years ago, centuries ago. And yet, there's no fear that Satan is going to thwart God's plans. None. Satan knows about it. I'm sure he understands the scriptures much better than you or I do, because he's able to twist them. He's able to use truth to deceive. So the term weeks here is, uh, that's what's inputted by translators. It should have been translated sevens, though the result really is the same. So Daniel believed the end of the seven years spoken of by Jeremiah, it's coming to an end, and he was getting very excited. And he was only partly correct. Yes, this is coming to an end. That's what Gabriel basically tells him. And as Frigdenbaum points out, what Gabriel is doing here, honestly, is a little bit of a play on words. He's saying, you know, Daniel, it's really not 70 years. It's 77s of years. This is new information. So I'm sure Daniel's like, wait, you mean it's not over almost? The 70-year captivity is almost over. Soon Daniel and others who wanted to could go back to Jerusalem and start their lives there. But there was something else. So Gabriel is saying it's not 70 weeks, but 77s of weeks, or 77s. It's a, it's a play on words. So seven, 77s of years, or 70 times 7. That's really what Gabriel is telling Daniel. 70 times 7 equals what? 490 years. That's where we get the 490 years. Now, what's interesting here 
is I've talked with people, and maybe you have too, they sit there and they go, well, okay, it's, it's 490 years, that would have come and gone a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. It would have come and gone. So what's the problem? Around right? 2888. Right. So how can we still be in this period? That's, that's the big kicker. So that is something that I think is confusing for some people. Don't and you I, know? Pardon me? Don't you know? I do know. Do you know? You do? I have an idea. Okay. I have an idea too. Dave, do you have an idea? We'll get to it. We'll get to it. And then you can tell me if I'm right, and I'll tell you if you're right. I bet it's the same idea. I bet it is. We'll see. <laughs> Sam, I like your dry personality. All right. All right, man. Uh, so what's cool about this, though, this is why Gabriel has divided these things up into... First, seven, then 62, and then a final seven. Yeah. One seven. That's why he divides it up. He didn't, he didn't group all these 490 years and say it's going to run boom, 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 and then end. He doesn't really do that. So let's keep going here. And I hope I'm making this clear to you because we could probably spend two lessons on this, but I really didn't want to do that. I just wanted to kind of get the basic information out there. I've got a book if anybody's interested. Um, and if I can dig up some copies, I'll bring it. It's, I wrote out a book, it's, it's very thin. It's just called Between Weeks. And in it, I go into an awful lot of detail about this whole thing. So if you want more information, let me know. As a matter of fact, I can send you the PDF version of it uh, instead of, yeah, that'd probably be easier. So the seven years of Jeremiah is merely one portion of the total program for Israel, which equals 490 years. That's, and by the way, where did God come up with this 490 years? That's also a good point to ask. Where did God, why did God decide 490 years? Well, we know where he came up with the 70. Where did he come up with the 70? Do you remember? Because the Israelites were not doing what? They're in the land of Sabbath. They were not doing the Sabbath rest for the land. Yeah, yeah. and they didn't do that 70 times. Right. So God says, okay, then... Force it on you. Yep, you're going to have to deal with it. So I'm kicking you out of the land. The land is going to have its Sabbath rest for 70 years, and then I'll let you back in. So, and he does this. But the 490 years is an expansion of this. Why? Because of the plan of salvation. So let's keep going here. The captivity suffered by Jews was going to end because 70 years was almost up. However, what's really fascinating about this is they have never, including today, been totally independent of foreign powers overseeing them or intruding in their political affairs. They've never, they've never been that way. And we know what happened in A.D. 70. There's another 70. A.D. 70, led by, I believe, what's his name? Titus, Diocletian. Anyway, the Roman armies, they went in and totally destroyed Jerusalem. And Christ warned about that in the first part of uh, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. I mean, they totally destroyed Jerusalem. I'm sorry? Oh, they, they did. Totally, Absolutely. I mean, they slaughtered millions oh, of Jews. They did. Absolutely. Like three million Jews were slaughtered. Absolutely. Some of them got out because... They heeded the words of Jesus when, when they saw the army surrounding, they skedaddled out of there. They didn't even take time to get their coats. But what's fascinating, and of course we also know that these Romans not only destroyed so many people, but they also destroyed the temple 
not one stone was left on another because they wanted the gold out of each of those stones. So what they didn't want, they threw in the Kidron Valley, which is right next door on the way to the uh, Mount Olives. Right. All right, so, however, this was only part of the whole. 490 years was decreed by God because he has some stuff to, com to accomplish with Israel. With Israel. He wants to finish their transgression. And what's their chief transgression? Rejection of, God, of Christ. Rejection of Christ, which translates absolutely to unbelief in God. Really, that's what that is. They're rejecting Christ, who is God, and by rejecting Christ, who is God, they're ultimately rejecting God. So God is going to say, okay, in 490 years, I'm going to make sure this is out of you. This is going to be gone. What is this? You're going to have plenty of time to finish that transgression. I'm going to deal with it. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 also bears this out, as well as other parts of Ezekiel. I'm going to put an end to sin. By the time God gets done with them, their hearts will be so malleable yeah. and hearts of flesh that they will, they will be diehard believers in God. They will, they will count it an honor to be martyred for Him during the tribulation period. You know, I sit there and I go, I'm afraid of pain, you know? But I'd love to be at that point myself. It's quick. <laughs> it could be, but it could be. Man, they lop your head off. I well, mean, if they do it quickly. Yeah, but look what Nero did. Yeah. Good Lord. All right, and he's also going to use this time period, which the I'm going to say it. The first two periods, the 7 and the 62, are consecutive. And then... There seems to be this nebulous period of time where we don't know how we're counting it. And then we get to the last week, which we'll get to in a minute. During this time, this whole, during this period of 490 years, somewhere in there, God is going to atone for the iniquity. He's going to atone for the iniquity. So he's got one, two, three things to do. Fourth thing, bring in everlasting righteousness. And then seal both the vision and the prophet and anoint a most holy place. All of this, by the way, leads up to, ultimately, the physical return of Christ and the founding of his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. All of this leads to that. But in order to get there, God has to put the nation of Israel through all this. I mean, really, the, the tribulation coming, according to Scripture, is going to be a terrible time, but it's often called things like the time of Jacob's trouble. It's referencing mainly Israel, though God's wrath is poured out on the whole world. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be, I think, what is it? The fifth seal in Revelation 6 is when martyrdom, massive martyrdom happens. So, anyway, let's keep going. Most conservative biblical scholars believe the date of this origin that Gabriel is referring to is when Artaxerxes Logimanus who in 445 B.C., and this is, this is kind of supported in both Ezra 4 and Nehemiah 4, when he basically gave the order, there were a number of times in the Old Testament where an order was given to rebuild uh, parts of Jerusalem. But most scholars believe this is, the, this is the one that Gabriel is actually referring to um, when it happens. 
So in 445 BC, Artaxerxes Longimanus decides, go back and build, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild it. So if, and by the way, somebody has done the math. So I'm, I'm grateful for that because they counted the actual days. According to the Jewish calendar, yeah. uh, which was, I think, at that time, 360 days per year, not 365. So that kind of ties into that video you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway. That's how he counts the days, too. Yes, yes. 360 day years. Yes. Or, or, right. Uh, 360 day years. Yeah. 360 day years, correct. Yeah. And so I forget, I think it was Sir Anderson who actually did all the math. And he came up with, I'll show you in just a second, well here it is, 173,880 days from the issuing of that decree. Those passed all the way through the time that the Messiah was cut off, but not for himself. Mm -hmm. uh, after, so that was the seven weeks, then the 62 weeks, or seven and 62 is 69 weeks. Oh, or... 483 years. Right. So, but again, if that's true, well then seven years only needed to pass to be 490, so why isn't it done? That's a question a lot of people ask. I'm sure you know the answer. And again, it's based on the calendar of 77 years. Okay. This is from the cover of the book I wrote. And I, I created this little chart because I'm visual, so I have to see things. I know not everybody does. Some people can do math in their head. I can only do a little. So here we are, 445 BC, Artaxerxes issues the decree. Rebuild Jerusalem. So seven years equal 49 years. So they, seven sevens equals 49 years. So they started rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, by the time Jesus comes, of course, Jerusalem was com pretty much completely finished. And even the temple that had been the Temple Mount area had been expanded and beautified by Herod because he was partly Jewish and partly Gentile, coming from different parentage, one Gentile, one Jew. So he was very political, and uh, he knew he needed to, as often as possible, make the Jews happy. So he figured if he poured money into the temple area, that would make them happy. That's why the temple was so beautiful during Jesus' day. That's why the apostles... In Matthew 24, and the disciples came to him and said, look at these buildings, isn't this beautiful? He also wanted his name associated with He did, absolutely. Oh yeah, you look he at the history. He was a builder. Yes, he was. And you look at the history books, and it's like Herod is credited with building this, as if he actually built it. But we know he didn't build it personally, but he put the money in, he put the troops in there, he got the slaves going on it, but yes, he took credit. And some of his products still exist. They do. I mean, there's a... An amphitheater. Oh, okay. Along the coast. You know, I wish I wish we would have gone sometime before. We had a chance to go to Israel and stuff way <coughs> yeah, before COVID, but I didn't want to spend ten grand at the time to go. Yeah. But um, I'd, I'd like to go, but I guess yeah, I'll just have to see it later. I've been on. to Israel once. Oh, have you? Yeah. Oh, good for you. On a police exchange program. Oh, nice. But they took us around all of these places. It's, it's pretty cool. I mean, when we, we took a river cruise and we were in places in Europe, and where was it? Was it in Vienna where we saw the Roman ruins just 30 feet down? Oh, yeah. 30 feet down. And we saw a wall from the first century. It's yeah. fascinating stuff. All right, so seven weeks, 
62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks. Why does the clock stop? Well, because of this event right here. So this event, the, according to scripture, the way I understand it, is um, after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And this is an interesting part of the text. And the people of the prince who is to come. A lot of people uh, think that that refers to Jesus. I am of the opinion it refers not to Jesus, but to the guy who is actually going to be talked about in verse 27. So it's, notice the, the terminology and the people of the prince who is to come shall do what? It's those people that will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who are those people? Who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? The Romans. The Romans did. So Gabriel, without pointing them out by name, is basically referring to the Romans right there who did destroy the city and the sanctuary. And when it says in the next portion of the text, and the end of it shall be with a flood, that is often, often in Scripture used to um, describe military movement and the use of a lot of troops. There, if you look, if you've read anything about how Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, it literally looked like a flood. That Roman army totally inundated the city. They left nothing undisturbed. They left nothing uh, still standing. As you said, Sam, they took millions of lives of Jews that was literally a military flood. It's not talking about water there. The same type of imagery is often used in the book of Revelation and as well as many other prophetic areas of Scripture. Well, that's the event that caused the dispersion of the Jews. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, exactly. Israel at that point no longer existed. No, they did not. That was it, it. It took how it many? It became Palestine. It became Palestine. It did. And, um, yeah, it did. And it took, what, centuries? And it took two world wars yeah. before, quote-unquote, Zionism caught hold. And people think it's such an accident that Israel became a nation again. It's not an accident, in my opinion. God directed that. God allowed it. Because Ezekiel talks about the fact that he will regather them in unbelief, which is what God has been doing since then. So... And the think, clock, sorry. Well, I, I just think, you know, and, and it just is clear, and after the 62 weeks. Yes. So it's kind of like, there's a cutoff. Messiah shall be cut off, but not yeah. for himself. Right. We're talking so, about that's the crucifixion. Right, so that's right in us. here. Yes. The 62 weeks ends. After that event, after those 62 weeks, or totally after 69 weeks goes by, what happens? We're actually in a little bit of a parenthesis right here. There's no time frame. Crucifixion, destruction of Jerusalem, wars, desolations, to the end. Now, that is not, in my opinion, just referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. It's pointing way ahead to the future, where I believe we are living now. So, if this is true, if I'm understanding this correctly, 69 weeks, 7 weeks, things happen. In the first 49 years, there was a rebuilding of Jerusalem. That rebuilding continued all the way up through and until the Messiah 
was cut off. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah was cut off. So the 62 weeks came to an end, a total of 69 weeks. The clock stops after 62 weeks. Messiah is cut off, but not for himself. That happened around 32 AD. And I don't know if this is in the way. And then 70 AD, less than 40 years later, Jerusalem is destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. So the prince was not there yet. Right. He is coming and he will be here. And he is the guy in verse 27 where it says, then he, the first antecedent, which means you go back to the first person that the he refers to, is the prince who is to come. So this is my opinion. People sometimes get confused thinking that he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, meaning Jesus. But the, the Messiah and the people of the prince, two different people in my opinion. So he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The first antecedent of he is the, the prince, prince yeah. not Jesus. So we're referring, we're referring back to that guy. And he is going to create a covenant for one week, seven years, the tribulation. That's still in front of us. The so time I'm, of Jacob's trouble. Exactly. So I remember talking with a guy who was, a, I believe, a Seventh-day Adventist, and he could not wrap his brain around, and I get why, and he couldn't, let me put it this way, he couldn't understand why I couldn't wrap my brain around his way of thinking. But his view is that this whole 490 years, it's already done and over. It's way done and over. But what I think he is missing is this gap right in here. And this is, there is no time frame. God knows exactly well, how long this is. There may be a time frame. Okay, go ahead. Well, this is not without precedence. Okay. okay. If you recall, when uh, Moses, I guess it was Moses, sent the two spies or spies oh, right. into the promised land and they came back and they ended up spending 40 years and wandering around the wilderness. Right. Until they were all what? dead. Until they were all dead, right? What? Yeah, well, why did they spend 40 years wandering around? Disbelief. Yeah. Oh, right. Disbelief. disbelief. And to, to let all the people who were involved so, in disbelief die. It, I've seen, I'll find it for you. Okay. It may be C.J. Lovett. It may be the same guy that you struggled with. Oh, the math mind. dude? Okay. Oh, man. But <laughs> he basically says that if you take uh, the 69, I think it's the 69 weeks. Oh, I know. Okay. And multiply it by 40. Okay. You come up with a rough right. patch right. idea of how long that gap is going to be. Okay, because he's also going by the 7,000 year cycle. The 7,000 okay. year total. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. And and I'd have to, of the world. I would have to listen to him more to see if it starts making sense to me, uh, and it could very well. Well, yeah. it's very convenient that you know God at this point kind of shifts gears and said, "Okay, 
you Hebrews, my chosen people, you continue to want to reject right. everything I'm doing for you. Right. I'm going to go over here and chat up these Gentiles. <laughs> and make you guys jealous at the and same time. And make you guys jealous. Yeah. So uh, this really serves two purposes. Yeah. One, it gives time. This is called the age of the Gentiles. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the church and age. It's to, the church age. It's a couple of thousand years long. And if it does fit into what people uh, like... C.S.? C.J. C.J. Lovett are talking about, then it makes perfect sense. Um, my, my point, I guess, and I agree that there's certainly could be some reality there. Yeah. My point is this. For our purposes, I don't think we know the exact... No, we don't. But God does. Right. That, that's my point. Well, it's um, all part of a plan, but if you look exactly. at it, I mean, it, it has its own beauty. Oh, it does. I mean, it's very intricate and very... Uh, and God doesn't do things haphazardly. He wouldn't pick 490 years and then not have a specific amount of time for this, even if we don't know it. Or maybe it's there for us to, to find out. But yeah. what I'm saying is, God doesn't just go, well, I'm going to... Well, he says in Daniel it will all be revealed in the end. Yeah. Right. Well, exactly. we're pretty close to the end. Yeah, I would yeah, say we so. Are. I would I mean, say and Danny so. Jones talks about that same time frame, yeah. about 7,000 years. We listened to, I told Mark, when we're traveling, we, we like to try and listen to the messages here, but when we can't pick them up for some reason, or we go to our backup them. church, which is... <laughs> Danny Jones up in Gainesville, North Lake Baptist Church, and, and he's really good too. But, but I think, um, you know, the, when you're talking about exact, so that first seven, I mean, when you when you do the math here, the declaration went out in 445, right. and the wall around Jerusalem yeah. was built in 396. Right. So that's exactly the 49 years yeah. that, that it took for that wall to be built. And, and it was times. even in troublesome times because you they, look at both Nehemiah, Nehemiah and, so and much Ezra. pushback. Yes, yes. I mean, they had to build the wall holding a, a, a spatula or whatever they use <laughs> for the bricks, and then a sword in the other arm. I mean, it was troublesome times. Yeah. So we know we can look back in history and see, well, that worked out perfectly. So we also know that this will work out perfectly according to God's timing and according to God's choosing. And then we know this last week will start exactly when it's supposed to start. And it will be seven years, the final week. It has to be because it all needs to be fulfilled. So, let me continue. Oh yeah, that's the tribulation. Forgot to put that. Alright, and here's another chart. Same kind of thing. A total span of 483 years from the very first declaration to rebuild. 483 years. Then 32 AD is when Jesus roughly was crucified. 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Here we are present. I made this chart in 2009, but you can put... 2009. But you can put 2022 in here. The present, where we are right now. When does this last seven years? We don't know. Some people come up with really, really good ideas. They may be correct. But the reality is that God knows, and like Mark said today, we are to trust Him and not worry about all the stuff that could be taking place. I mean, I'm not worried, are you? Really? Why? Why should we be worried about... Yeah, yeah, that's, what, yeah, that's the point. God's winning. So from here until the very end, there will be wars and desolations, and they will continue to the end. And I don't know if you can see this right here, but the 70th week begins right here. 
in verse 27, it begins when this prince who is to come that many uh, conservative scholars believe is the Antichrist, he signs the covenant with the many, meaning the representatives of Israel, for seven years, but he will break it at the midpoint. And of course he does this so that they will do what? Rebuild their temple. That's what he wants them to do. He doesn't like the Jews. He doesn't like Israel. He hates Israel. He wants to use their newly rebuilt temple, and it doesn't even have to be the whole temple. It has to be enough of an area for it to include the Holy of Holies. And he will waltz in there, desecrate their temple, and tell the world, I'm God. Worship me. And that's when it gets bad. When we get there, we'll see that in Revelation 13. So here we are. Timeline, 770 years. Okay, again, the tribulation. That's what's ahead of us. Now, you know, years ago, I was pretty, pretty, um, pretty convinced that the, revela- the tribulation was not going to start happening until the peace agreement was signed with Israel, brokered between Israel and Arab nations, and it was brokered by the Antichrist. I was convinced of that, and, I, and to an extent, I certainly am still. However... As I've begun to understand things, I think, a little bit better, I also begin to realize that um, in chapter 6 of Revelation, there are these first four seals that are opening. The Antichrist is not going to appear one day. He's not going to go, oh, I'm here on the scene. Okay, oh, Israel, let's let's do peace. Okay, it's going to take time. So there's a real pot, and I'll get more into that when we get into chapter 6. So I think there's some things that we may be seeing as kind of precursors to things revving up, let's just put it that way. But I want to get into, I've got about five minutes here or so, but I want to try and finish this with Revelation 4. So turn to Revelation 4, if you would, and I want to get into this. And we know that we've talked about the introduction, the benediction, the vision of John in chapter 1. The loveless church, the compromising church, uh, the loveless church is uh, Ephesus. Mark went through that. I went through it briefly uh, in chapter 2 and in in chapter 3. It continues with the churches, the dead church, the Sardis church. They have all the correct doctrine, but their hearts are dead. The faithful church, the lukewarm church, Laodicea. And then we get past all that. And that's Jesus, of course, speaking. John's dic- taking dictation. And then we get to the chapter 4, and I don't have time to read all of this, but it says, The throne room of heaven, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Chapter uh, Verse 2. So after all those things... John looks up and he sees an open door in heaven and he's told, come up to see what was slated to happen in the future. And it clearly tells us in verse 2, immediately I was what? In the spirit. Notice it does not say, my body was translated to heaven. Some people believe that this, and, and I don't want to argue with them, but some people believe that this is a reference to the pre-trib rapture. I don't necessarily view it as such. I know Fruchtenbaum doesn't necessarily view it as such, but yet some conservative scholars who have more titles and letters after their name than me do think. So it's totally 
however a person sees it. I just think it was like him seeing a vision. And the reason God wanted him to quote-unquote come up was because he wanted to see things from heaven's perspective. That's the way I see it. And again, I could be wrong. It happened last week. So this come up does not necessarily prove a pre-trib rapture. It could, but it doesn't necessarily in my mind. It appears that I think God just wanted John to see things from heaven's vantage point and imagine. Imagine seeing what John saw from heaven's vantage point. And it's obvious as we get more into Revelation, John had a very difficult time trying to translate what he saw to words that he had no real knowledge of, he had no experience with. I will show you things which must take place after this. And this is interesting because the word must in the original Greek is day, which is divine necessity. There is no chance, what God is saying, what Christ is saying is there is no chance that these things will not happen. They will happen. They must happen. They are decreed to happen. Nothing will keep them from happening. This is what he's telling John. And of course, us. So as soon as John heard the divine voice, he was translated spiritually. His body remained on earth. Where was he at this time? The island of Patmos. He was sent there by a Roman emperor, um, and he was basically told, you're exiled, dude. You're out of here. Go heavy labor. So this is where he was. His body remained there, but he was in God's throne. And we know that people like... um, Jacob saw something similar in a sense. Jacob's ladder, we call it. There are other people who saw visions. Paul said he saw things that he really was not allowed to repeat and and tell us more about. David. David, yeah. So what John sees from chapter 4 onward, right here is the starting point for what happens in the future. So it comes after the period of the seven churches, however you see the seven churches. So it comes after all of that. And this, that part of it, again, may indicate a pre-trib rapture because it comes after, quote-unquote, the church age, but it may not. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. The church may already be in heaven at this point, but it might not. So we'll just leave it at that. But again, what John sees from here on out is a vision of what God wanted him to see about the future. So here's what he sees. He sees one sitting upon the throne. Imagine this one shine brilliantly. He could not distinguish features. Have you ever have you ever looked? I remember when I was young, I went to a glass blowing place and the furnace has to be so hot that you really can't stare into the fire but let's use another example when you're welding you have to wear those special glasses because if you don't what happens to your eyes they will burn they will burn your eyes so imagine trying to see and distinguish the features of the one sitting on the throne who shines so brilliantly and he couldn't do it and this is most likely 
God the Father. <clears throat> the attendants, this is interesting. And of course, as you know, there are many interpretations. Who are the elders? Mm-hmm. Well, there are 24 thrones with elders. They are in white with crowns. Um, white is often, especially in the book of Revelation, a symbol of salvation, although Christ used it in many of his um, references and metaphors. White is a symbol of salvation. The Old Testament uses it through our revelation. And celestial beings do not need salvation. So it's quite possible that we're not talking about angels here, but we're talking about saved human beings who are now, when, when John saw this, in God's presence in glory. And some people believe that the elders were at one time lost, of course, just like us, became saved. And the crowns are not diadems worn by royalty. This is, you wouldn't know this, because if you just see the word crown, you're thinking, well, crown is a crown. But it depends on the Greek word used. So their crowns, they're Stephanos, or overcomers, which is what you and I will get, which is fascinating in and of itself. So this could, again, signify the church. It may not. The term elders is nowhere else used in scripture for angelic beings. They're never referred to as elders, so they're most likely human beings. It's exclusively used as humans in positions of authority, either in synagogue or the church. So, it actually could be um, they may represent the church as a whole. It also could represent you know, the twelve Jewish representatives and 12 church representatives who were both all together saved. It could represent that. So it may represent the church as a whole, the 24 elders. And the Holy Spirit is referenced in verse 5 where it says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven Spirits of God. Why seven? Well, it's a perfect number. And there are other references in Revelation where it talks about the seven lampstands, the seven this, the seven. Those are usually, not always, but usually references to the Holy Spirit. I think it goes back to Isaiah. It does. It does. And verses six through eight describe four living creatures. This also goes back to Isaiah, chapter six, one through three. And if you look at those verses, they perfectly describe what turns out to be the seraphim. Let me see if I can get this real quick. Isaiah 6, 1-3. Alright, it says here... Hmm. Where are you, chapter 6? There we are. You got it? I do. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it, above what? His throne, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And this is what they cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full 
of his glory. So these are the same type of creatures that stand before God's throne. Why would they be different? It's the same ones. They're the same described in, in Ezekiel too. Exactly. And that's the one I just read to you. So John then sees the entirety. He sees God's throne room and it is in essence symbolic. This is something. When you read Isaiah 6 and it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is a present, ongoing tense. And yet we look at our earth today and we see, really? The whole earth is full of his glory? Sometimes I wake up and I go, how do you stay sane in a world that's going insane? Literally. But God is in charge. God is fully sovereign. God's sovereignty is exercised in his judgment. And so from this point of origin proceeds the outworking of God's wrath described in the rest of the apocalypse, apocalypse, excuse me, 610, all these verses. So until the time that Jesus returns for John, when we get to chapter 19 and 20, everything is describing the outworking of God's wrath, that final week of global impending judgment. Though evil reigns for a time on earth, God will ultimately prevail. You know, you read so many scriptures about the fact that don't worry about evildoers or workers of iniquity. They're they're like here today and gone tomorrow. As far as God is concerned, to us it seems like, why are some of these people still alive and still (laughs) criminals and still doing this? But God says, don't worry about it. Don't worry. I've got it under control. And continuing, there's a constant, continuous praise of and for God. His righteousness, His truth, His sovereignty. This is one I want to kind of end on today, tonight. One day, all of us, we won't be able to not praise God. We will not be able to not do that. It will just emanate from us. Everything we do, even when we're not specifically praising God with words, everything we do, everything we think, everything we say, our attitude, our outlook will praise God. And that's exactly what these seraphim are doing. They're a picture of what it will be like for us. And that's the end of this particular one. Any questions? I'm only seven minutes late.